Welcome to Heart Matters on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Matthew Sorrentino, and joining me to discuss the latest in lipid management and improve our understanding of the lipid guidelines is Dr. Aaron Mikos, who's an associate professor of medicine and the director of women's cardiovascular health, as well as the associate director of preventive cardiology at Johns Hopkins Medicine. Dr. Mikos, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me here today. The ACC AHA released new cholesterol guidelines in 2013 with an update in 2018. The 2013 guidelines moved away from specific LDL cholesterol goals, but the 2018 update kind of reintroduced some specific goals, such as an LDL target of 70 milligrams per deciliter or less in our very high-risk patients. Can you help us understand why these changes were recommended and the rationale for the 70 milligram per deciliter LDL target for our very high-risk patients? Yes. So in these latest update guidelines, we focus both on absolute risk and levels. So absolute risk does matter that individuals at greater risk for cardiovascular disease derive greater benefit, both absolute and relative benefit with a more intensive lipid-lowering therapy. So there is still maintenance for both primary and secondary prevention in the guidelines for doing some kind of risk assessment. Even in secondary prevention, the new guidelines have delineated between high risk and at very high risk for cardiovascular disease, and they have different strengths of recommendations for this. So in the guidelines, for those who have secondary prevention who are not at very high risk, For individuals under the age of 75, again, we're still using a statin as a class one indication, a high-intensity statin to lower LDL by more than 50%. And then there was a little weaker recommendation, 2B recommendation, but that if uh, on the high-intensity statin or the maximally tolerated statin, the LDL is still above 70, that you could add azetamide may be reasonable with a class 2B indication. But they gave a stronger recommendation for secondary prevention for very high risk, because we know that there's a difference between patients that maybe had stable angina and got a stent 10 years ago and have been doing fine versus the patients who have been in your CCU with an acute coronary syndrome. These are the ones who are even greater risk of recurrent events you want to treat more intensively. So the guidelines delineate this group of very high risk as those who've had a recent acute coronary syndrome event within the past 12 months or a history of a myocardial infarction, ischemic stroke, symptomatic peripheral arterial disease, along with some high-risk conditions, which are so common in these patients, like an older age or having diabetes, hypertension, CKD, or smoking. So it is in this very high-risk group that, again, you want to use your high-intensity statin first to get reduce your LDL by more than 50%. And then they gave a, a stronger indication, a 2A indication for adding azetamide to the statin if the LDL is above threshold of 70. And then additionally, in this high-risk group, they said if you're on a maximum tolerated statin and azetamide and the LDL is still above a threshold of 70, They gave a 2A indication it's reasonable to add PCSK9 inhibitors in this group. Now, keep in mind, the U.S. guidelines are a little different than the European guidelines in that they did consider costs. These lipid guidelines came out in 2018, and this was a little bit before we had the cost reduction with the PCSK9 inhibitors, where the European guidelines didn't include cost in their recommendations. 
And as for their very high risk individuals, they had recommended an even lower LDL, more than less than 55 milligrams per deciliter would be the target in those really high risk groups. So both absolute risk matters as well as levels matter in these latest guidelines. Many times we see some of these high-risk patients that uh, are not on the maximal dose of statin. We see a lot of patients on atorvastatin 40 milligrams, for example, or rosuvastatin 20 milligrams. Uh, Would you recommend uh, pushing the statin to the highest dose first, or if you need a 20, 30 milligram per deciliter fall in LDL, should we be going right to uh, a different agent uh, like azetamide? depends why they're not on the high-intensity statin, whether they actually had an intolerance. Sometimes side effects, muscle statin-associated muscle symptoms are greater on the higher-intensity statins, or whether it's just inertia that they were never initiated or was never tried. I do believe in the LDL hypothesis that if we can lower LDL through upregulation of the LDL receptor, we'll have meaningful results. So I frequently add ezetimide to a statin that might not be high intensity if if the patient does not wish to go up to the highest dose or had intolerance with the highest dose. But many patients were never tried or never offered a high intensity statin. And I think that's a missed opportunity. Certainly we have data supporting that. But the good news is this is beyond the guidelines because the guidelines came out in 2018, but I'm really excited that we have new tools in our toolkit that can further lower LDL. So I think that's why the levels do matter, perhaps more than just the drugs. Obviously, we want to use drugs that have proven outcome benefit. The FDA approved earlier this year, bempedoic acid can be used as an adjunct to diet and maximally tolerated statin for patients who had ASCVD or heterozygous familial hypocholesterolemia if they need further LDL lowering. Now, of course, the outcome trial for bempedoic acid is ongoing, but I'm certainly encouraged by any drugs that can lower LDL. And this drug may be particularly of interest because it is oral and it doesn't precipitate in skeletal muscles. So it might be particularly useful for those patients who are so common in our practice that are reporting statin-associated muscle symptoms. But probably the one I'm the most excited about on the horizon is the new PCSK9 inhibitor through the small interfering RNA and clizerin. I'm very excited that just dosing this twice a year, every six months, that you can reduce LDL by 50%. I mean, that's pretty remarkable. Just one more time a year than your flu shot, and you can lower your LDL by 50%. And so I think this undergoing evaluation and outcome trials as well But I think this may be really important in the future, particularly younger adults who maybe have FH to improve adherence, because we know that unfortunately adherence with statin therapy tends to wane over time. For those just tuning in, you're listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Matthew Sorrentino, and here with me to discuss management of our high-risk patients and treat their lipids is Dr. Aaron Mikos. Dr. Mikos, I'd like to just shift a little bit to primary prevention. I think, you know, we all know that some of our secondary prevention high-risk patients we need to be very aggressive on, but are any of our primary prevention patients be considered very high-risk, and would they also be candidates for PCSK9s and bempedoic acid and some of these newer agents? That's a great question. 
So, of course, our primary prevention guidelines are risk-based. For everybody, of course, we endorse a, a healthy lifestyle. The best way to prevent cardiovascular disease is to follow a healthy lifestyle throughout the lifespan. Now, the primary prevention guidelines still recommend that for adults age 40 to 75 without diabetes and without cardiovascular disease to start with a 10-year risk assessment using the pooled cohort equations. And then once you estimate 10-year risk, you can bin patients into these four groups, low-risk patients, less than 5% 10-year risk, lifestyle might be enough, high-risk patients with a 10-year risk above 20%, lifestyle plus drug therapy, high-intensity statins. And then there's this large group in the middle, this borderline, the 5 to 7.5% 10-year risk, and the intermediate, the 75 to 20% 10-year risk group where there may be some more uncertainty. So particularly for this borderline intermediate risk group, the guidelines introduce what they call risk-enhancing factors. So these are factors that are already clinically, should clinically already know about your patients. The guidelines acknowledge that after you estimate 10-year risk and after you consider these risk-enhancing factors, there can still be uncertainty about patients' risk or patients' indecision about the net benefit of statins for them. And so in these cases where there is risk indecision, you can get a coronary artery calcium score if you're actually measuring atherosclerosis. And we know that individuals with a zero score, it's not zero risk, but a zero score is associated with a low risk over 10 years, like a 0.1% per year risk. And so these individuals may wish to defer statin therapy if they so desire, but really any non-zero score crosses above the 7.5% 10-year threshold of events in 10 years. And so the guidelines does favor statins for anybody with a non-zero score, but there's a graded fashion, of course, with the higher the score, the more risk. So you got back to the question about, should we use non-statin add-ons to statins and primary prevention? And so this wasn't addressed in the guidelines. So I'll be clear that I'm sort of now going into sort of my opinion and what other experts say, but weren't in the guidelines. But indeed, subclinical atherosclerosis is sort of this intermediate phenotype between primary and secondary prevention. So what do I do in my clinical practice? Well, if somebody has a lot of disease as manifest by an elevated coronary calcium score, I actually do aim for an LDL less than 70 in these individuals by adding a zetamide to a statin. This is a little bit of an emerging area, but in some of these patients, particularly who have a poorly controlled LDL and a lot of subclinical disease, I've used that to try to get pre-authorization approval for PCSK9 by arguing that their extensive you know, subclinical vascular disease might qualify them for PCSK9 inhibitors. And that has worked in some cases. So I've used PCSK9 selectively in these individuals, usually uh, more often in individuals who have a diagnosis of FH for primary prevention. And then bempedoic acid only come out this year. The label for bempedoic acid is for secondary prevention and heterozygous FH. But that being said, I actually think the space where bempedoic acid might have the most role because it's oral is exactly this primary prevention group who maybe can't tolerate statins because of statin-associated muscle symptoms, which we know we don't have that problem with bempedoic acid. So I actually am interested in using bempedoic acid in the primary prevention population, but that's outside of the FDA label. 
As a final quick question, I've noticed that the guidelines do specifically give an age cutoff of 75 years in our primary prevention patients. Should we consider stopping lipid-lowering therapy at that age or reduce the dose in patients over age 75? So, you know, aging is very heterogeneous, and I wouldn't make the decision just based on age. I would look at their overall life expectancy and their quality of life. I generally recommend keeping patients on a statin if they're already on a statin. There is observational data in France that have shown that older adults who stop their statin after age 75 actually have an increased risk of events. So there is a suggestion that Withdrawal of statins in older adults may be associated with adverse effects. I take each patient as an individual as part of shared decision-making. I wouldn't make the decision just based on any absolute age cut point. But it is true that the guidelines did kind of differentiate the intensity. For secondary prevention above 75, they still gave a class 2A indication of initiating or continuing moderate or high-intensity statins. And then for primary prevention... The guidelines actually gave a lot of options. They said if someone is above 75 but had a lot of comorbidities, that was reasonable to stop statins. And they also said it was reasonable to continue statins. And then they gave a third option, which is something that sometimes I use, is that they said that you could, for those age 75 to 80, get a coronary calcium score. So even the guidelines give a, a lot of options, including the potential option was a 2B indication, a little bit weaker than in the younger adults, but that you even could use coronary calcium in this age group, too, to guide shared decision-making. Well, with those final thoughts in mind, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Erin Mikos, for joining me to share her insights on how to utilize the cholesterol guidelines and manage our patients' lipid levels. Dr. Mikos, it was great having you on the program today. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed talking with you. I'm Dr. Matthew Sorrentino. To access this and other episodes in our series, visit reachmd.com slash program slash heart matters, where you can be part of the knowledge. And thank you for listening.